Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Be looking at verses 26 through chapter 3, uh, verse 11. If you would please rise as we honor the public reading of God's word, beginning with Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 26, uh, all the way to chapter 3, verse 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedamoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road, and I will will turn neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, who dwell in Ar, did for me, until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through, For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to possess it that you may inherit his land. Then Sion and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz, and the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So we defeated him, his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at that time. And we utterly and we utterly destroyed the, the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. From Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people. And we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them. As we did to Sion the king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time we took the land from uh, the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salca and Idri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the, of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. 
Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, please help us to see in this passage that you are in sovereign control of all things that happen in this world and that you do work all things out for the good of your people. Lord, help us to see this, that our hearts might be stilled in the midst of opposition, that we might grow in our faith towards you, that we would recognize your great power and even the wonderful reality that in your grace you have worked that power for the good of a weak and lowly people. For Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes it can seem like in this life there are many obstacles to faith, that there are many ways in which the church is opposed, there are many ways in which the church seems too weak to face uh, the opposition that it encounters, and one can even wonder, uh, can God in fact fulfill his promises? Can he fulfill the promises that he's made to his church? We see this uh, when you know the church is weak, when it is small, when it does not seem to have influence. We wonder whether or not the church can actually thrive. And we see even within the church, oftentimes, uh, even in our own day, certain key doctrines are attacked. There are uh, those who oppose the church from without, and those who distress the, the church with heresies from within. And we wonder, you know, we look around, we see, you know, the church appears to be very weak. Those in the church are very weak. Can it be the, the case that God will, in fact, fulfill his promises to his people? Is it true what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not stand against it? And when we consider these questions, we can ask even further, how can we know or how can you know, in the face of all this opposition, that the church will in fact be successful, that God has the power to fulfill his word? And the answer to that question is you must consider and recognize, based on what God has done in the past, that he is absolutely sovereign. That he is absolutely sovereign. His power knows no bounds. It is infinite. And even if it is the case that his people are weak, and even if it is the case that those who oppose his people are strong, still, because God's power is unlimited, that it is infinite, God's people have nothing to worry about. God's sovereignty is often something that uh, Christians struggle with. They, they think it's something that shows that God's not fair or whatever else. But in the scriptures, God's sovereignty is always meant to be a tremendous comfort for the Christian. Everything that God has promised to you, he has the ability to fulfill. Everything that he's promised to you, he has the ability to fulfill. Now, this applies particularly to the passage that's before us. We have here Moses continuing to recount the history of the people of God, uh, from particularly from the, the time of their wilderness wanderings as they left Sinai all the way up until the present time. For Moses is there on, on the edge of the Jordan, about to cross over west into the promised land. And here, after recounting, as we looked at several weeks ago, three peoples that God told them not to attack, particularly the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, now we get to uh, two people, two groups of people under two kings, 
who whom God said to attack. And God sovereignly gives the people of God their land. And the en- emphasis in this whole passage is that even as uh, the Israelites were able to win these battles, they were only able to do it because God is absolutely sovereign. It was really God sovereignly giving the land of people who are too mighty for them to the Israelites because God favors them. And what we see then from this is that God, not only just here, but in every age, in every age of the church, God sovereignly orders all things to fulfill his promises. There is not one of of the things that God has promised that can fall to the ground because God sovereignly orders all things to fulfill his promises. Now we'll look at this passage under two head, under three headings. Uh, there is, in some ways, the, the recounting of the defeat of Sion is parallel with the defeat of Og, and so we're going to look at various things in each of them, uh, in each of these stories, as we look at it in kind of a parallel way. First, we're going to look at the way in which God is sovereign over the hearts of men, which you see emphasized in, in both accounts. Also, the way God is sovereign over wars and the battles that the Israelites face. And then thirdly, that God is sovereign in the distribution of land, uh, of the land, the blessings that he gives to the people of God. So God's sovereign over the hearts of men, God's sovereign over wars, and God's sovereign over the the distribution of the land. Now notice, as we begin to look at how the way in which God is sovereign over the hearts of men, notice that in verses 26 through 29, there are basically terms of peace that are offered to uh, Sihon, the, the king of uh, the Amorites, who lives in Heshbon, uh, the people of God have already been told that they are going to be able to take the the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites. We see that with uh, verses 24 and 25, which we did not read. We covered it a few weeks ago. God had promised the people of God that they would take the land of Sion, the king uh, of the Amorites, who dwells in Heshbon, and also Og, the king of Bashan. And yet, in verses 26 or 29, Moses essentially offers peace to him. Let me travel through uh, on the road. Let me buy food from you, and we will just continue on our way. We will, we will not uh, attack you in any way, and we will simply go towards the Jordan and take the land to the west of the Jordan, which the Lord our God is giving to us. But notice then, notice then in verse 30, that Sion de- de- uh, refuses to accept these terms, and the reason given in verse 30 is that In verse 30, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. God specifically hardened the heart of Sion, the king of the Amorites, so that he would refuse the terms of peace, so that then he would come out to fight against the Israelites, so that then he would deliver the the Amorites into the hand of the Israelites and then sovereignly give them their land. Everything in all of these interactions, shows God's sovereignty. God, the only reason why they were able to get the land is because God hardened the heart of the king of Sion. Now, this is very similar language to, to what we see with Pharaoh uh, in, the, in the Exodus. A number of times, as uh, he has shown plague after plague, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, we read that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And even we see in in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, we see the God saying that it was actually for this very reason that God was raising up Pharaoh, that he might display his greatness in saving his people 
who were too weak to save themselves by doing it with signs and wonders so that even the peoples who were in the, the area west of the Jordan, that they would hear of these great signs and they would know that the God who is the God of the Israelites is the true God and they must fear him. They must fear him. God shows his glory even in the stubbornness of man. Even this is under the sovereign control of God. Now, this leads to a question that has been asked over and over again. This is always a difficult question uh, that, that Christians struggle with. And the question is this, did God compel Pharaoh and the Amorites, particularly Og and Sion here, against their will to uh, basically control them into uh, refusing to accept uh, the reality of God's power and therefore be destroyed? Uh, what is the sense in which they were free to make their own decisions? And what was the sense in which God uh, compelled them? Or how is it that we can say that God, in fact, hardened the hearts of these people? And is God unfair in when he does these kinds of things? Now, one of the things that we can say, especially when we think of the, the fuller explanation given of the kind of the Exodus, is that it's not only the case that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it's also the case that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so even the way in which God hardens the heart of Pharaoh does not in any way, does not in any way negate the reality that Pharaoh was acting exactly in accordance with the way he wanted to act. That in fact, Pharaoh's will was left in some ways actually free. That he was, he was able to choose the thing that he wanted to choose and he was not compelled to choose something against his own will, but he actually willed to harden himself. And that willing to harden himself was, in fact, also uh, God hardening him. Now, that may come as a surprise to you as uh, you know, we're in a, a Calvinist and Presbyterian church, that there is a sense in which the will remains free. But notice what our confession says in, in chapter 9, particularly in section 1. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty or freedom that it is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Basically, a summary of this is that God does not compel people against their will. He changes the will, but it is not the case that Pharaoh wanted to be gracious to the Israelites and that, and that then uh, he was forced against his will to be hardened. Pharaoh went the way he wanted to go, and God was in control of making Pharaoh go that way. Both of those statements are true, and so it is with Sion the king of the Amorites as well. That God did in fact harden his heart, and yet, when what's really an amazing, uh, incredible uh, thing to consider, God hardened his heart without violating the freedom of his will that he was still free to choose whatever he wanted, and yet what he wanted was guaranteed to be, in accordance with his sin, to be hardened against the Israelites and to come out and fight, so that we can say that even from all eternity, God had unchangeably decreed that Sion would come out against the Israelites, and he effected in time that, they would, that he would in fact be hardened, and, uh, and that being hardened, he would come out and fight uh, against the Israelites. Now, this is an amazing thing to think that how these two things could go together. This is why the confession later will say uh, that this is, in fact, a very high mystery. But it gives, it's, it's meant to give comfort uh, to all the people of God in the scriptures. 
to think that even the hardness of man's hearts as they fight against the church, even this is under the sovereign control of God and that he uses all of it for the sake of the advancement of his own purposes. No matter what opposition you face in this life, all of it is under the sovereign control of God. And even though it, it appears that that man is going his own way, we can say in a lot of ways it's true. Even so, it's under God's sovereign control and used for the sake of his purposes. Think of the way uh, that in Matthew chapter 11, after Christ denounces all of the cities that do not believe in him, he actually praises God for the denunciation of those cities. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed it to little children. Christ praises God for the hardness of men's hearts because it shows God's wisdom in hiding it from the learned and revealing these truths to those who are weak. Even the hardness of man's heart is used for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God and to fulfill his purposes. Now notice as well, that there's something that we can say about man's responsibility. This is always the next question that comes. Uh, how do we reconcile man's responsibility with, with God's sovereignty? And then even maybe a more practical question that we can ask, what are we then to do? Uh, how are we to act in light of God's sovereignty? Notice what happens. I, I mentioned in verses 26 through 29 uh, that even though the people of God had already been told by God's decree in verses 24 and 25, they would in fact receive the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Even though that was the case, still in verses 26 through 29, they offer peace. They, they are not to act in a way that violates the way in which God, in his justice, wants wars to be fought. They must in fact still offer peace, even though they know that they will fight Sihon, the king of the Amorites, that they will win, and that they will get his land. They still must offer him uh, these terms of peace. And so when we think about uh, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, or even a more pointed question, uh, what is it that man is supposed to do and what is he responsible for? He is responsible for acting in obedience to the things that God has revealed to him in his commandments. What is it that God wants you to do? He has revealed it in his commandments. This is what theologians often call the revealed will of God versus his secret will. There are things, everything that happens is by the decree of God, and yet there are things that God has revealed to us that he wants us to do. When wars are fought, there are to be, in this sense, defensive wars, that there is to be peace, that is to be offered first as you pass through the land. And it's only when then there are, there's a hardness of heart in Sion, the king of the Amorites, comes out against the people that they, in fact, fight against him. They are to act in accordance with God's revealed will. And this is especially true today. You know, it was the case at this point that they did know what God's secret decree was. They did know they were going to receive this land. Uh, and yet even then they offered peace. How much more is this the case today when really the particulars of the way your life is, is going to go, you have no idea. You have no idea how these things are going to happen. You trust that, that uh, God and his sovereignty is going to work all things out for good. You know that, that, that that's the case. But the particulars you do not know. When you make a decision about what is the will of God and what you are to do, you are always to make that decision on the basis of the things that God has revealed to you in his word. And so if you were to, to take a, a basic question, I have uh, two opportunities for different jobs. What is the will of God? 
What, what, how, how do I know which one God wants me to take? You're not to think uh, that God will uh, miraculously reveal to you the one that he's chosen from all eternity that you're to have. You're rather to look at the word. Does one of these jobs cause me uh, to have to be put in a situation where I will have to take advantage of others? That would be a violation of the Eighth Commandment. I'm not going to take that job. Does one of them uh, cause me to work in a way that w- where there will be sexual imp- impropriety? Violation of the Seventh Commandment. I'm not going to take that job. Does one of them uh, cause me to, uh, to uh, work against the person of other people uh, in such a way that the Sixth Commandment would be violated? I'm not going to take that job. That, will it cause my family to have to move to another place where there is no church? Violation of the First Four Commandments. I'm not going to take that job. We know what God's will is by the things that he has, in fact, revealed to us. And if we can say that all those things are equal, then uh, the way you make the decision is simply by making the decision. You're free to make the decision as you see fit. God does not reveal these kinds of particulars to us with regard to his will. He wants us to act as the Israelites acted here. I know that if I'm going to pass through someone's land, I must ask for permission. And so I'm going to do that. I know that in regardless of what else happens, what else God has decreed, I know that that's what God wants us to do. And so I will act in that way. And so God is sovereign over the hearts of men. Notice as well that then as in both cases, uh, the, the people of God come into the land of Sion and the king of, uh, the king of Heshbon and Og, the king of Bashan, that there is a great emphasis in the text that God is sovereign over all the battles that they, that they fight. Notice in chapter 3, verse 2, with regard to Og, the Israelites, the Israelites are told not to fear because the battle belongs to God himself. He is the one who is going to fight on their behalf and he will give the people, uh, the, the, these peoples over to them. Notice in both cases as well that, that there is a divine speech that's given immediately before the record of the battle. So in verse 31, we have in the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. Also in chapter 3, uh, verse 2, And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. Before they come out, God says, I am going to be the one who is going to give this to you. And then notice then even the way in which the battles are recorded, the same thing is emphasized. Before it's said that the Israelites struck down uh, Sihon and Og, before that's said, the first thing that's said is that God delivered them over to their hands. So the order of, in, in terms of recounting these events is, uh, God says I'm going to do it, God does it, and then the Israelites do it. God says he's going to do it, God does it, and then the Israelites do it. The emphasis is that all of these battles are won by the Lord that he is absolutely sovereign in them. And in some ways, that sovereignty is even emphasized even further when we consider the kinds of people that, that uh, were defeated in these battles. Now, remember, a few weeks ago when we were looking at the early part of, of Deuteronomy chapter 2, that there were these um, historic parenthetical notes about how uh, the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ammonites had defeated all these other peoples and that all these other peoples were, in fact, giants. And it shows that God was able to defeat the giants and uh, give the land to, these, uh, to the people that were weaker than the giants. The same thing is being emphasized here. These people 
whom the Israelites defeated were from the same kinds of descendants. Notice there's a description of Og in particular given in verse 11. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. And then there's this, this great description of, of his bed, which was nine cubits in length, something like uh, 13 and a half feet in length, or maybe even a bit more than that, and four cubits in its width, something like six feet uh, in its width, according to the standard cubit. Just an enormous bed because the person was an enormous individual. Notice then even the description of his land and his cities. Sixty cities they took from him. All of these cities were fortified uh, in verse 5. They had high walls, gates, and bars. And then apart from those 60 cities, there were also very many other rural towns which were taken by the Israelites. Og was a giant, and his, his bed was so big that they actually, it actually says here that they took it to Ramah, which is some distance away uh, from, uh, from where he lived in Bashan, basically to just put it up almost like in a museum. Look at how great of a person this was. They had just put up his, his, his bed and had it basically on display so that other people could see how great this individual was. And he had this mighty nation, and yet they were defeated. All of them were defeated by God. God was able to give to the Israelites the land of these two people who were far stronger than they were. And so not only is it the case that God is sovereign in what he does, but he often acts in such a way to, to emphasize and highlight his great strength, that uh, he is able to take, uh, to take the land from people who are far stronger uh, than the Israelites. He's able to save the weak out of all their troubles. Now, think about this then with regard to the church. If we were to ask, does the church face difficulties? The answer, of course, is yes. Does it face opposition? Yes. Are there, is there some sense in which you know, the, 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 the flood of the culture is stronger than the church? In some ways, we can say yes. The, we, you know, we're not uh, particularly a strong people on our own. But this does not mean that the church will be defeated. It's not that you can look out at all the ways in which the church is, uh, appears to be overrun and where the church is outmatched or whatever else you can say about uh, the state of the church today and, say that, and that, to say that that's a reason for despair. The reality is God always acts for the sake of his people when they, when they trust in him, even in their weakness. And let it be the case that the odds are stacked against us, so to speak. This will show all the more that God is the one who will get the glory. The Israelites could not have won any of these battles on their own, and yet they won all of them. Remember what, it, what uh, is said in, in, particularly in Psalm 33, verses 16 to 19, that the battle does not go to the, to the strong, doesn't go to the, to the person who has the war horse, the great king, but rather the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. And he delivers them from all their trouble. It does not matter outwardly how strong uh, any foe is. It matters that God is on the side of the humble and the contrite in heart, those who trust in him. And he will deliver them out of all of their trouble and he will win all of their battles. He is the one who fights on behalf of his people. And we can know then that ultimately the church will be victorious even the hardness of men's hearts are being used for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And even with all the strength of the opposition, God is mighty and he always works for the sake of his weak people. Now, another question that often is raised, and particularly with passages like this and also all throughout Joshua, is, is it, 
is it right that the people of God, uh, in taking these two kings and defeating them, is it right that they put to death all of the men, women, and children? Notice that that's, uh, that's what happens, uh, particularly uh, in verses uh, 34 and 35 particularly verse 34 of of chapter 2, we took all his cities at that time and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. And the same thing is said in verses 6 and 7. How are we to understand this? What is the difference between, particularly, between this kind of action and genocide, which we would readily recognize uh, is a great evil in the world and is to be condemned wherever uh, we find it? Is there a sense in which uh, these wars are just, that they are in fact uh, not sinful uh, wars? Or to put it another way, how could it be, that's a question that is often asked, how could it be that God could command uh, the Israelites to destroy entire cities full of people? What about the innocent people who had nothing to do with any of these fights? What are we to say about all these things? Well, there are a number of things that we can say in terms of showing the difference and showing that this is not a genocide and uh, that these wars are in fact just, and these would apply to the wars that, that Joshua fought as they entered the land as well. First notice in verses 26 to 29 that peace was in fact offered first, that it was actually Sion who was the aggressor, that he's the one who came out uh, against the people of God, and they fought against him when he came out to fight them. Now that doesn't immediately justify killing every man, woman, and child, but it does mean that at least the initial uh, battle is, a, is just. Uh, because it was, in fact, a defensive war. But what are we to say then about the destruction of all the men, women, and children of these cities, and then also west of the Jordan? This is the, the this is the normal way that Joshua, in fact, uh, conducted his wars. That all the men, women, and children would would be put to death. Well, the answer is that this this act was, in fact, an act of God's divine judgment. That it was uh, it's a, it's exactly the difference between a murderer and an executioner. A murderer is guilty of a great crime. An executioner is simply carrying out the lawful sentence uh, of a higher authority. And this is the way uh, that we are to understand both the taking of the land to the east of the Jordan in Deuteronomy, and it recounted also in Numbers, and also the taking of the land to the west of the Jordan as well. And if you were to ask then, you know, what about the innocent people? The reality is there were absolutely not a single person that was innocent. Uh, and, and I will just leave it to you to read the description of the sins of the people in Leviticus 18 and 20 in particular. Uh, their sins were very great. They were given a long time to repent, uh, centuries even, and they chose not to. God was very, very patient. You know, the sexual sins are described in Leviticus 18 and 20 are among those that even today, with all the sexual perversions that are going on, that our society would not tolerate. We have, we have not descended to the, the depths uh, of, that these other uh, nations had descended to. And you know, God says there that the land is vomiting them out because of all of these sins. And so this was a very real judgment, and God was absolutely righteous to judge the people. God had revealed to the people of God that they were to be essentially the executioners of God's judgment. And uh, so, really, when we read these, these passages, we're, it, we're actually to read them as a great warning. When we see, just like the flood, when we see God executing these peoples, uh, even completely destroying them because of their sins, it is a warning. 
that there is in fact a greater judgment that is coming, that God does in fact have the right to judge. He always judges righteously. He always sees every sin, and he can even use the weakest of the nations to execute his sentence of justice. And when he does that, it will mean the complete destruction, even of people who are far greater than the executioners. There is no way to escape God's judgment. And everything he does is perfectly righteous. Now, if you were to ask another practical question with regard to these things is, can such acts of judgment happen today? If someone were to claim, well, I know that God has judged this people, and therefore I'm going to completely eradicate them. The answer to that is, of course, no. God does not reveal uh, which wars are to be fought as acts of his judgment. This has to do with the the, uh, ending of special revelation. God does not reveal things to uh, prophets like he did in the days of old. And therefore, there is no sense in which any people can have a divine revelation that a, a certain other people are to be eradicated because of their sins. That would be an act of murder, not an act of execution. And so these things cannot happen anymore. But it does show that, that when they did happen, they were done righteously. And it does show God's great justice. And so God is sovereign over all the battles that are fought. They are even expressions of his own righteous judgment. Now, the other thing that we see from this passage is that God is sovereign in the distribution of all land on the earth, that God gives to one people, one land, he takes it from another, and it is his sovereign prerogative to do so. He does it uh, without asking for permission. He simply does it because he is the sovereign king of the entire universe. Now, you'll notice that after the uh, record of the defeat of uh, both of these kings, there is immediately followed a description of the land which they take, verses 36 and 37, uh, describes the land of Sion. And then verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3 in particular describes uh, the land of Og, the king uh, of Bashan. Notice as well that in uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 37, that the land of the Ammonites, again, it's emphasized that it's not taken. Remember that that was actually said uh, in the previous passage that the land of the Ammonites would not be taken. Here it's emphasized again. They only took the land which God gave them to have. And then at the very end of the passage as well, verses 8 to 10, there is another description uh, of the land. This is all of the land that they took from Sion, uh, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. And one of the things to to notice about the land is that it is very large. Uh, The land they took east of the Jordan was a very large section of land. And you'll remember that As the people of God were moving towards the Jordan, even we see this with the terms of peace that Moses had offered in verses 26 or 29, that really the people of God were thinking about the promised land as being the land west of the Jordan. That that was really the the, the main bulk of the land that they were to receive. But notice then, even as God sovereignly distributes this land, that he gives them quite a lot of land that's actually to the east of the Jordan. Now, they're they're only to take exactly the land that's been defined for them, but he does, in fact, give them a lot of land that is to the east of the Jordan. And one of the things that we see from this, then, is that even as God had promised the land to the west of the Jordan as a a great blessing of salvation, that would be for the people of God, that, that they would dwell in God's midst in that land, so, too, we see that very often, uh, this is the case all throughout the scriptures, that God's blessings overflow beyond our wildest dreams and comprehension. Uh, that you know you expect only the land to the west you get the land to the east too and you get to the land the land to the west god gives all of it 
this is the way it works even with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. Uh, you have a problem with your sins. You are going to be judged. Would it not be a great thing if God just said, you know, I'm going to forgive you these sins, you won't be judged? That would be fantastic. But notice the way in which God's blessings just overflow as he gives more and more. It's not just that you've been forgiven so that you won't be judged. You now have Christ's righteousness given to you so that now you have a right to a reward. Not only that, but then you're declared to be a son far beyond just being made righteous. Now you're a son of God and not just a son, but even an heir. You get, you get, you go from being wicked and saying, you know, I would take anything from you, God, if you're willing to give it to me in your grace. But he does not just forgive, count as righteous, declare to be a son. He even makes you an heir. The blessings of God overflow beyond our wildest comprehension. And this is, this is exactly what we're seeing here. God promises the land to the west of the Jordan, and he gives them a tremendous amount of land that's to the east of the Jordan. And this is just to magnify the, the wonderful grace of God, that he is incredibly gracious with his people. God's people never, never have any reason to complain against God. He has given us far more than we can ever even hope to, to obtain, far more than, than what we can uh, say that we deserve uh, in this life. He is truly the God of all mercy and grace. Now, Another thing that we can say about the way in which God distributes the land is that there is a sense in which there is an already not yet component then to the promises as Moses is describing them here. Something that this is something that's said often with uh, New Testament theology, you know, Christ has won the victory. And so we do have these blessings that are ours. And yet there's a sense in which they already are ours. And yet there's also a sense in which they are not yet ours. We're still waiting for more things. Notice here, as the people of God are on the east of the Jordan, as they're on the banks of, of the Jordan, looking to the west, that the same is true for them. They have already begun to take possession of the land. And yet, as Moses is speaking to them, they still have all the land to the west of the Jordan to take. Notice as well, though, the connection between the already and the not yet. The blessings which they already have are meant to give perfect confidence to the people of God that they will, in fact, receive the blessings they have not yet received. The blessings that God has already given to them to the east of the Jordan proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that they will, in fact, take all the land to the west of the Jordan as well. The one gives confidence of the other. And think, th think of, the, uh, of this. You know, there's, the, there's the giants that are to the west of the, of the Jordan that they have to take. You know, they look like grasshoppers. Uh, the Israelites look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And yet, Og is also a giant. He's got all these big fortified cities, and they're all destroyed. And they, they, exactly what has to happen to the west of the Jordan has already happened to the east of the Jordan. There is no reason whatsoever for the people of God to lose confidence. God has shown that he is the one who sovereignly gives land on the earth. He sovereignly distributes it, and he will, in fact, fulfill all of his promises. Because of his sovereignty, you can know God will fulfill all of the promises that he has made to us. And the same is true for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The decisive victory has been won. And the blessings that you have received now ought to give you perfect confidence that all of the other blessings that have yet to be received, all of them will be yours. All of them will be yours. That you have been forgiven of your sins. You've been accounted righteous in God's sight. The body of sin within you has already been put to death. 
it is being mortified day in and day out, you can see the progress. You can know for sure that God, in accordance with his righteousness, will one day bring all those things to completion. Even as you have seen the new life of resurrection being planted within your hearts, you can know that your body, after it's put in the ground, will partake of those same blessings later. The, the work of resurrection has already begun, and because you can see it, that it's already begun, you can know for sure that you will partake of the resurrection on the last day. And so when we think then of the opposition that the church faces, this ought to be a great comfort. The battle has already been won. What God has done for his people in the past gives us great assurance for, about what he is going to do for his people in the future. And if you were to ask then, how is it that in the face of all this opposition that I can, can uh, feel the, this confidence, understand that God's going to do all these things for us? It is by looking back to the work that has already been done at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the work that's been done with the outpouring of the Spirit. And then noting then that if God has done that, then he will also bring his people into the fullness of the benefits of salvation one day. The, the, the decisive battle has already been fought like to the east of the Jordan. It's already happened. Therefore, we know we'll take the land of the west. The decisive battle has already been fought with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, therefore, that all opposition will crumble under the church, that the church will in the last day get the victory. It's, it's a very similar attitude that we find in Psalm 77. People of God are in trouble. The psalmist uh, is praying to God. And one of the things he does is he remembers the work of salvation that was done at the Exodus. He says, God, you did all that back then, and now we're in trouble what, I, what am I going to do when, when, when we're in trouble? I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember the great acts of salvation and of redemption that you have worked. And I will know then, as I plead with you to, to help the church, I know that you will act because you acted back then. God's decisive act of salvation gives confidence to his people that he will in fact give them every blessing that he has promised them. God's sovereignty is the main theme that runs all throughout this particular passage. He is sovereign over the hearts of men. He uses it to, to give and his people all the blessings he's promised them. He's sovereign over every battle, and he's sovereign over the distribution of all the land. God's sovereign grace is meant to show us that even though we, we are too weak to fight our own battles, even though we do not deserve any of the blessings that God's given to us, that God will, in fact, in his sovereignty, he will, in fact, give us all the things that he's promised to us. What, what really can man do to us, as strong as man may be? Has not God shown in Christ that no one can snatch you out of his hands? Has he not shown that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? It, it may be that the opposition is too strong for us, it may be that they are beyond our own strength, but God has shown over and over again, as the Apostle Paul has said, that when we are weak, it is at that very moment that we are strong because God fights for us. May it be that we would be given the faith and confidence to see these things and to put all of our hope and confidence in God who will sovereignly give us everything that he's promised. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for 
the history of salvation that you have given to us in the scriptures, for the history of all the great acts that you have accomplished, for the way in which you do sovereignly work out all things for the good of your people. Lord, help us in the midst of all kinds of trouble to look to you, to know the reality of all these things that you do, and to know, Lord, that you are mighty, that you are our great God who is in in sovereign control of all things. And Lord, may it be that when we feel distress through uh, whatever in our our life may bring us distress, may it be that that in thinking of your almighty power that our hearts would be quieted and that we would receive the peace that is beyond all understanding, knowing that we are in your hands. Lord, we pray that you would give us this faith. Increase our faith, we ask, O Lord, for the sake of the glory of your own name, that you may get the glory as the God who acts for the sake of his own weak people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, please stand with me as we close out the service by singing the doxology. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.